Well, it is going to be a special day for us today. It's a good day to be at Omaha Bible Church because we are going to learn about and hear from the greatest person to ever have walked the face of the earth according to Jesus. The greatest human being ever to walk the face of the earth according to Jesus up until his point in time. And it's not Solomon. It's not Abraham. It's not David. The greatest person to ever walk the face of the earth according to Jesus, Matthew 11.11 says, is none other than John the Baptist. So, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to hear from and learn about John the Baptist. We're also going to even learn about those who would come after John the Baptist, who are greater than John the Baptist. We'll save that for the end, but actually, according to Jesus, that would include us, strangely enough, but we'll save that till later. The reason John the Baptist is so important and the reason Jesus says that about him in Matthew 11 is because John the Baptist is the greatest announcer ever. Because John the Baptist is the one to announce the coming of the one who all of human history has been waiting for. The King, the Deliverer, the Savior, the Protector, the Provider, the One that the Old Testament had promised long ago, before the foundation of the world, the Bible would say, there would be one who would come, and He would come, to quote Matthew 1, to save His people, to deliver His people from their sins. And that would be Jesus. So up until that point in time in history, the greatest one is John because John has the extraordinary honor of saying, he's here. Get ready. Be prepared. It's fascinating that he would be considered the greatest one, but it's not altogether remarkable because he's announcing the ultimate savior the one we all need, the one human history has been waiting for, even if human history hasn't known it's been waiting for. It's Jesus. He's called the forerunner, the one to come right before him to say, you'd better get ready for this. You ain't seen nothing yet. Okay? So today what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through the gospel according to Matthew, the good news about Jesus according to Matthew, and we'll work our way through most of chapter 3, but we'll stop short of the baptism of Jesus. And by the way, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait to preach that sermon. Some, I promise you'll be encouraged next week. I think you might be today, I don't know. But I, I think for next week, the reason Jesus does what he does, I can hardly contain myself, but I will. So let's start, let's start learning about this John the Baptist, the greatest one ever to walk the earth up until his point in time because of the dawning of the great one coming. Verse 1 and 2, or we'll start working our way through it. We won't pre-read it lest we be here forever. But in verse 1, in those days... Kind of a contrast from Luke. Luke gives the details historically. Matthew just almost at first seems nonchalant in those days. Well, which days? 
Well, maybe he's downplaying it because in one sense, in those crucial days that everyone knows about, if you're reading my gospel account, you would know in those special days, those extraordinary days, you know, those days when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and, and those, those particular days. And, and now we're going to learn he's grown up. And now he's an adult, and now his public ministry is ready to launch. We're going to see that at his baptism next week. In those days, in those crucial days, at that critical time, in those days, probably purposely downplayed, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. People who don't like Baptists just say things like that. John the Baptizer. Because, you know, we know the Baptists are wrong. So I've heard preachers do this before. So if you don't like Baptists, let's call him John the Baptizer. Well, he's John the Baptist because he's known for baptizing people. He's famous for doing that. As we will see, all of the people are going out to him to be baptized by him. To experience a religious ceremony to uh, to undergo uh, this religious spiritual symbolic endeavor baptizing people immersing people into water with a spiritual meaning he's famous for it so he he he's the quintessential baptist not southern baptist but but he he's the baptizer okay i digress john the baptist came in those days preaching proclaiming heralding announcing in the wilderness of Judea he's doing this. And at least one translation says in the desert. And for for an Omaha kid, for a Midwest kid, I think that's helpful. So if you're not from around here, maybe uh, wilderness works for you. But for me, desert helps me understand better because when I think wilderness, I think greenery. Um, I think Sherwood Forest or some kind of forest or something like that. Um, And so desert helps me. Because the wilderness of Judea, outside of Jerusalem, is desolate. Okay, it's gonna, it's gonna look to an Omahaan or an Iowan, almost said Iwegian, but I wouldn't do that. To, to someone from the Midwest, right? Probably it's better to think desert. Desolate. Dangerous. Not a lot of water, though. There's gonna be water because we have Jordan River. But it's outside of town, not populated, not green. It's going to be browns and grays. Okay, it's a tough spot. And what's interesting is we're we're meant to see this contrast. Not about Sherwood Forest or deserts, but we're meant to see the contrast because he's not in Jerusalem. He's not where you'd expect him to be. If he's a prophet of God and he's going to speak extraordinarily for God on God's behalf as prophets do, you'd expect him to be in Jerusalem. You'd expect him to be in the extraordinary place where the temple is, where God's unique dwelling is, where there are priests and where there are sacrifices and all of the rest. So we're, we're meant to see this as a signal. It's a silent signal, but it's a, it's a profound signal. Something's not right. Okay, as the old saying would go, something is awry in the state of Denmark, but it's not in the state of Denmark. And this isn't Shakespeare. Something's not right with what's happening in Jerusalem. Things are supposed to be good there. That's where you go to hear the truth. It's where you go to have sacrifice. It's where you go to extraordinarily meet with God. And here they have to go to hear the true message in the wilderness? 
something is, is bad in the state of Israel at the time, which wouldn't be new if you've read the Old Testament. It's a, it goes to pattern. And as we work our way through Matthew's gospel account, we'll see the perversion and the corruption that's rampant among the leaders in Jerusalem. What's not said here is an indictment on what's happening, if that's helpful. Now we come to the, to, to the what of John in verse 2. Repent. It's in the imperative and it's the first word out of his mouth like Jesus will say later, so maybe I should raise my voice. He says like any good Baptist, right? Repent! The command is to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's meant to be striking. Repent! Maybe one of the most important concepts that we would ever know. I mean, it's fallen on hard times because we think of somebody who's just, you know, uh, all, all heat and no light and the crazy, angry preacher scolding you or something. But, but to repent means to change your mind, okay? And if you're wrong, isn't it good to change your mind? Yeah, if you're wrong, to not change your mind ends up being insane eventually, and, and so if we think about it in other realms of life, maybe we'd be on to something. So you can live in denial, and that's not healthy, it's not good, it's not the key to living a happy life. But in touch with reality when you've been wrong is to change your mind so you're now on the right track. And, and in our context, clearly as we work our way through it, it's not just changing your mind in a general sense about mathematics or something like that. It, it's in a moral sphere. He's calling people to change their minds about God. Okay? He's calling to people to change their minds about themselves and their state before God. He's calling them to change their minds uh, 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 about what God likes and what God doesn't like. What's true and what's not true. Okay? He, he, he's, it's, there's a moral imperative. You need to have a heart change, we might say. You need to acknowledge your wrong. You, 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 you have to acknowledge your wrong before God. You know, God doesn't grade on a curve. Uh, God doesn't help those who help themselves. Or whatever it was they were buying into, it's all going to be okay because I'm not as bad as my bad neighbor. So God's happy with me. You could fill in the blank. We have to come to grips with these kind of things too. Repent. Repent before God. Realize you need atonement. You need forgiveness. Think Everything's not okay. And that would translate into today. But at this point in time, oh, let, let me say this. Would it, been, would it have been a good idea to repent the day before John started preaching? Yeah, I think so. If you're wrong, it would have been good to acknowledge you're wrong and you want to do what's right and think the right way the day before John started preaching. Ten days before John started preaching. A century before John started preaching. Repentance is always a good idea. I, 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 would, I would invite you to be a repenter. Okay? Especially when it comes to the things of God and, and Christ. But here he's got this extraordinary event that's happening in human history. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He also will say, if we look at the other gospel accounts, the kingdom of God is at hand. There's something that timely about this. There's a unique sense of urgency. Yesterday you should have done it, but you know what? Because of what's about to happen, this is, this is critical and crucial because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's dawning. It's here. And we, we know if we keep reading, it's because Jesus is, the king is there. 
This is all about the anticipation of the Messiah. Again, Messiah means Christ. It's interchangeable words. It's the long-expected one, the ultimate king, the king who is not a bad king, the king who is not a sinful king, the king who doesn't abuse his people. This is why I like to use all of these other descriptive words. The ultimate king is going to be a protector, provider, leader, guider, one who provides forgiveness, atonement, and everything his people would need. That would be a good and fitting king. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The ultimate king. He's saying, finally, the Messiah, the long-expected one is here. If there's ever a time to get right before God and think the right way, it's now. The kingdom of heaven. And we'll talk more about this through Matthew's gospel account. But if, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the king is at hand. And the king is going to bring about the new creation, right? The fulfillment of the new covenant. The fulfillment of the, the Davidic covenant, uh, the one that was promised in Second Samuel chapter 7, if you haven't been with us in recent days, where that one who would come in the line of David would rule and reign, how long? Forever. He's the ultimate David. Oh, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that's at hand. That means the new creation is at hand. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is at hand. The fulfillment of the new covenant is at hand. This is big stuff. And I don't want you to take my word for it. We'll talk about it throughout our study of Matthew's gospel account. But even think in terms, when I just said, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the dawning of the new creation is at hand. At least in a inaugurated sense, if not, it's not consummated, he hasn't returned yet, but think of it in these terms. We studied Second, Second Corinthians not very long ago. One of the most famous verses in 2 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. As a new Christian, people taught me to memorize scripture, so I had these little cards, and some of them were used out of context, but I'm thankful for some of them. The first one I've ever learned was 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, read Old Testament word, Messiah, the King, If anyone is united to the king, if anyone is in Christ, united to the Messiah, he or she is a what? New creation or new creature. If the coming, if the king has come, the new creation has come. At least in an inaugurated sense, in a dawning sense. He is the one. If he comes and he succeeds and we know how the story ends, he does. Guaranteed reality. This is, this is exciting stuff. I just have to do this. It's great. It's no wonder that Jesus said he's the greatest man on earth up until his point in time. Because this is what all time has been waiting for the groaning, the longing, the anticipating. Oh, it's fantastic. You. Let's, let, let, let's move on. Man, I have to skip a lot of pages in my notes. I said a lot of things from memory. It's good to get away to San Diego where it's 76, I guess. It's good for my health. 
verse 3. I just had to skip six pages of notes. Hope I, hope I have enough material. I always do. Let's go to, let's go to verse 3. It says in verse 3, For this is He. This is, this is He. This is John. So now Matthew's going to comment on John. We've heard from John. Now Matthew's going to give commentary on John. For this is he, John, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, I'm going to interject there. You probably have it in your margin, in your Bible, if you have a study Bible, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, because that's what he's going to quote. This is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Pretty, pretty amazing that he says this is the, this is he. You might not have caught it when you read Isaiah the first time. You know they're talking about future things happening and, and extraordinary things happening and restoration. But now, now Matthew says this is he. That, John the Baptist is the ultimate forerunner. He's the one who cries out in the wilderness, make, make the road straight, right? Royalty's coming. Extraordinary royalty is on its way. And he's using imagery, right? He's making a spiritual point. He, John the Baptist is not calling for, you know, road crews. But what do you do if a king's coming to your town in the ancient world? You want to, the king is the most special person. You want to impress the king. You want to be prepared for the king. So what do you want to do? You want to smooth out the roads. You want to take, you want to make the roads straight and safe. I think it was in 2010, I was in South Africa and, and I was there right before the World Cup. And when we'd go to different little airports, so we'd fly into these little airports in different cities and do these conferences. And, and so the locals were always talking about, wow, last time I was in this airport, it was, you know, it was a dump. Well, and it was all in tatters. And, you know, there, it was practically, there were workers out there, it looked like with toothbrushes, you know, making sure everything was shined and buffed and ready and new roads, new, all kinds of stuff. Because you've got to impress people because... People are coming here from all around the world for the World Cup. It's not exactly the same, but you get the idea. Something special, something extraordinary. Let's clean up the place. Let's make a great impression on those who come. We want to impress them. Well, in the spiritual realm, he's saying, you know what? If the King of Kings is coming, it's time to get the road crew out. It's time to impress. If anybody should be impressed, it should be this one, the ultimate one. Well, and John is making a spiritual point. He, he's connecting it to repentance. You, be, you better be thinking the right way. You better do business with God. You better acknowledge your guiltiness and need for atonement. You better stop pretending about reality. Make sense? He's the one. Now, I think it's also interesting when you read Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, um, what chapters? We won't go there. Ezekiel 9 to 11 pictures God leaving Jerusalem because of their sinfulness. And now here we have God, Yahweh, through the person of Christ, coming to Jerusalem to provide redemption. One commentator put it this way. The heart of the announcement the reason for the message of good news is that Yahweh, God, the living God, is returning to take up residence in Jerusalem again. 
This calls for royal preparations. Don't be in denial about reality regarding the one true God. He's coming. This is what we've been waiting for. Does that make sense? I realize we're living in the 21st century and this doesn't have a lot to do with us, but it has everything to do with us. He came to save his people from their sins and this is how it happened in human history. So now we learn a little bit more about John the Baptist. Verse 4. Now John wore a Hugo Boss suit with Gucci shoes. No. Is Hugo Boss still popular? I don't even know. The only, I, I, I bought a Hugo Boss tie one time and I think it was like $75. And I was going on a date with some woman who would become my wife. <laughs> In the 80s. I went to the store. I thought, well, that, maybe, this, maybe she'll like this. I don't know. <laughs> if it's not still a thing, it was in the 80s. I think it's still a thing. Giorgio Armani. I, anyway, I, what, whatever. Um, my point is, he, 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 he wasn't fancy. And, me, he, and now that I have your attention, a better way to put it would be, he wasn't dressed in typical religious garb. He, he wasn't part of the priesthood. He's going to be ordinary, in fact, lesser than ordinary, different. And he's meant to be different. So now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. So my question for you is, why would he look like that? Well, we can make some guesses. We don't have to be Bible scholars. Well, he would look like that because in contrast to the religious establishment, which had become broken and corrupt, he's in the wilderness and he looks like a wilderness dweller. Okay? He doesn't even look like an ordinary Israelite. It also helps us, and maybe you were thinking of this when I asked you the rhetorical question, it was to show contrast that he's not the Messiah. Even though some people will think he is, at least for a while. Also because he's a prophet. It's not, it's not, it's pretty normal for prophets to be weird people. Okay? Right? They're outsiders, color outside of the lines. And they're, they're different cats. Read Ezekiel. So, I'm going to digress for a second just to make the point about their weirdness. But if you go to the grocery store and you go to the health food section, anybody ever buy the Ezekiel 4-9 bread? Uh-huh. It's probably great bread. I'm here to only praise it. You know, I don't want a lawsuit or anything. Um... <laughs> It says, Ezekiel 4.9 products are crafted in the likeness of Holy Scripture. Verses like Ezekiel 4.9 to ensure unrivaled, honest nutrition and pure, delicious flavors. And I always kind of smirk internally because I want to read Ezekiel 4.12 that says, you're to bake it in their sight on human dung. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. <laughs> you go, I think I'll buy the Wonder Bread. <laughs> Now, 
I told you prophets are different cats, right? They're different. Now, to be fair, it goes, Ezekiel objects. He doesn't want to do it this way. So God says it's okay to use cow dung. I'm still going to buy the Wonder Bread today. (sighs) The Bible is amazing. What's more amazing is the way people use the Bible. Maybe, back to reality, you know, it's good to see John dressed the way he's dressed, especially in light of 11.11, where he's the greatest man ever to walk the earth. It's not because of status. It's because of how God's going to use him. Okay. Verse 5 says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan, notice the emphasis on on all of these people, lots of people, were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So again, remember, you'd think they'd want to stay in Jerusalem, not go talk to the camel guy. Right? Under ordinary circumstances, that would be the case, but things aren't right. And so, so they're going. Now, are they going because they know things aren't right? Are they going because John the Baptist is preaching such clear, profound truth? Are they, are, are, are they going because God is uniquely working in their hearts? I mean, all of the above could be true, but, but, but they're going. It's resonating with them. Are they going because they see the religious corruption? Again, all of these things are true, but they're going and they're going in droves. Okay? Messianic expectation. And they're being baptized, right? And it's, an, it's a baptism that's associated with repentance. The Bible talks about sometimes, uh, clean, you know, it's water obviously is used for cleansing. So it'd be a good symbol. Let's go get baptized. Why? It's a baptism of repentance. I, I am repentant and I'm willing to show because I not only am going to do external cleansing, but if it's repentance, I actually ha- have a need for internal cleansing. So it's a, it's a great word picture what they're doing here. It's striking that there's been 400 years of silence. Now we have a prophet speaking again. And they're going and they're confessing their sins. Now verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Pharisees and Sadducees. Just think religious leaders. Pharisees are going to be um, really into the written law of God and also oral tradition. And applying the law of God, they're the ones that Jesus will criticize later for making extra rules and regulations, thinking that the more rules you have, the more faithful you are. So they're they're also into legalism. Pharisees, Sadducees, um, again, really committed to written, but they they conflict with the Pharisees over oral. Um, They're they're tied to the priesthood. Uh, They're known at this point in time, according to Josephus, the extra-biblical writer, for associating with the Romans in the aristocracy, and so the people didn't like that. So they're not typically uh, buddies. But we're going to see they, 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 they get together because they oppose Jesus. But they're coming too. They're coming too. He doesn't tell us really why they're coming, but many of them are coming for his baptism. Again, your guess is probably as good as mine. Do they want to investigate to see what's going on? Because they are the leaders. Uh, 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 who knows what the motives are at this point in time. They're, they're, they're used to doing uh, external things. 
because John's going to expose them for being people who do external things and not internal things. So maybe this is just another way to cover your bases. I don't know. But verse 7 goes on to say, He said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Spicy, right? Marketing blunder. If you're trying to grow your Baptist church, (laughs) you're going to go after the leaders. But think in terms of he's got to do it. I, I don't want anybody here to think I'm like them. They've got the bad reputation because if they didn't have a bad reputation, all of the people wouldn't be leaving Jerusalem to come and be baptized by John. So John makes it clear, I'm of a different group than they are. And he calls them on it. He exposes them. This is about repentance. And surely you're not about that is in essence what he's saying. And so what does he do? He goes on to say in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So this is a baptism for repentance. I don't think you're repentant. You're really into externals and this is an external. If you're really genuine and you really are repentant, you have a supernatural change of mind about self, God, and His ways, if you will, then it'll show in your actions. So he calls them to prove themselves. So first he insults them and exposes them and he says, if you're real about this, then it'll show up in the way that you live your life. It'll reflect the genuineness of heart. Then verse 9 says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, he's assuming they're going to because Israel has a long history of doing this, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able... Uh, then, then he says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. He's saying what? He's saying, I know your type all too well. I've read the Old Testament, by the way. This is the pattern you always fall back into, it seems. You could put it another way. He's saying, I know you're going to tell me we've been circumcised. We've been circumcised, because that's another way of saying, we're the children of Abraham. We've gone through the external right. My last name is Abrahamson. Even if they didn't have last names, you get the idea. And John is saying, you know what? We're talking about the God who does supernatural things. And as we will go on to see, a true child of Abraham is someone who is a man or a woman of what? One word starts with an F. Is a man or a woman who has faith, who trusts in God's promises, whether they're Jew or Gentile, where there's spiritual circumcision, as we would go on to learn about. So John's exposing them. John's calling them on it. Let there be no mistake about me between me and them. Don't confuse us. And that's important because don't confuse those guys with the one whose way I'm announcing. Different. Different. Verse 10. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Judgment imagery. He's going to cut off the life source. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, if you're genuine and in earnest, you won't just say you're repentant. It'll show in your conduct is what he's saying. 
Now notice the emphasis on judgment, the even now, right? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's here, uh, anticipating. And now he says, even now this is ready to happen. And let's talk just for a minute or two about judgment. Because like repentance, it falls on hard times. Judge, 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 judge. Judgment is bad. Love is good. I'm sympathetic. There's a lot of meanness and browbeating is done in the name of judge, 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 judge. But I've never met a person in my whole life who doesn't have a unique place in their heart where they long for justice. On some level or another, people who do bad things should face appropriate consequences. Now maybe I won't impose that on me because I think pretty highly of myself. And you won't impose that on you, but we're all pretty good at imposing it on other people. And you see some horrific crime and you see some travesty. I don't even want to use examples, but you can certainly, certainly think of them. Maybe done uh, regarding with someone in your family or who you know about or someone who is powerless and weak and you think, you know what, somebody should pay for that. Well, I would suggest to you that that's right for you to think that way. Um, Romans chapter 2 says God's law is written on your heart. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. Even pirates have a code. Even if it's perverse. We all understand judgment. And in a certain way, whether we'll admit it or not, we all welcome the concept of judgment into our hearts. But here, we don't have judgment carried out at the hands of perverse men or women, corrupt representatives, none other than the long-awaited King of kings and Lord of lords, perfect justice. But there's justice. So with the dawning of the king, the dawning of the kingdom, right? Here we, 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 we have this happening. That does mean there's going to be deliverance for the repentant. But it also means there's going to be judgment for those who are not repentant. We have to keep that in mind. And that's always true. It's true now. This isn't bad news, but it's bad news if you're not repentant. So he says, even now, verse 10. And then he says, every tree. So this is universal. And then he says, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. That's good. That's right. It's called for as a prophet fulfilling Isaiah 40. That's what I'm going to do. I've got big shoes to fill and I'm doing it. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Greatest man ever. Jesus says it. But the greatest man ever doesn't say, and you should write children's books about me and how awesome I am. No, I'm awesome. Yes, greatest man who ever lived, by the way. And I'm not even worthy to be the servant of the one who's coming. So we learn from him in that way. The king, the Psalm 2 king, the ultimate son, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That, 
to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we, we know this. It's going to go from something important and good, fulfilling Isaiah 40, right? And fulfilling th- this need. But it's going to go to something greater. Jesus is greater. And his baptism, when he baptizes you, it will be... He's using new covenant talk. He's using Ezekiel 36 talk. Water for, for, for not external cleansing, but genuine spiritual cleansing. Ezekiel. Ezekiel is my favorite book. Ezekiel 36, it's classic New Covenant. Isaiah 36, 25 to 27, clean water on you, clean, cleaning you from all of your uncleanliness. I will cleanse you, give you a new heart, new spirit, uh, put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, I will put my spirit within you, extraordinary, special, unique, New Covenant, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You might mentally cross-reference to John chapter 3. Jesus is the one who's going to bring the new covenant because he's the ultimate David. So I'm doing something important. He's doing something far more important. Baptism with the Spirit. And fire. Now, there's debate, internal debate amongst Bible believers. Is fire used in a positive way? Like refining, as Paul would even use it at times? Maybe. Or is it used in a judgment sense? So let's take a vote and have a church split. (laughs) Let's not. Both are theologically true. Both are biblically true. What does he mean here? I I would lean toward the, the aspect that he's emphasizing the positive and the negative. I take fire as bad. Okay? He's going to immerse you if you're repentant. Holy Spirit, unique New covenant reality. If you're not, it's fire. He's already talked about fire multiple times. Unquenchable fire. The axe laid at the root. Judgment. That's why I always laugh at charismatics when they talk about God, baptize us with your fire. I'm thinking I wouldn't want to be even on the studio set if God baptizes you with fire. Because I think it's not going to go well. Extra crispy. Um... That's the kind of baptism you don't want, okay? You want the Holy Spirit baptism, which is new covenant reality, new heart, what we've been waiting for, Jeremiah 31. This is what history's been waiting for. Again, even if people don't know, they've been waiting for it. Then verse 12 says, His winnowing fork is in His hand. So again, uh, judgment is at hand. And, and He will clear the threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. Division, true division, division that we can't do. He's going to be the all-knowing one. So the animals would come or people would come and stomp on the grain and separate the grain and then they would take the, the, the winnowing fork and throw it up in the air. If it's windy and the chaff blows to one side and the good stuff lands, it's just a vivid image of this one who comes has come to save his people from their sins, chapter 1, but he's also coming to judge. And it's actually going to be righteous judgment. I told you we would end by talking about us. So good job using self-control, not finding yourself um, so far. But, but listen, to, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 11. I, I think this is worth, worth showing up today. Matthew 11, 11, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So that's how I started. But he doesn't stop there. 
He says in Matthew 11, 11, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, think new creation, kingdom of, of Messiah, is greater than he. All those who trust in Christ, new creatures, citizens of the everlasting kingdom, forever ruling and reigning, ultimately resurrected bodies, enjoyment, no longer a struggle. And by the way, John the Baptist would be a part of that. All of the historical significance is actually tied up with redemptive significance, not only for the people who were living then, but for people who've lived throughout all time who will trust in God. That's why we have the Hall of Faith chapter, because they're all trusting in His promises, therefore becoming part of the new creation. Now, we have to be careful, and we will be along the way. This is, that's why theologians talk in ter- speak in terms of the inauguration. We're awaiting the consummation, Right? And 1 Corinthians 15 would talk about this and other texts. But we don't say, oh, I hope Jesus finishes his work so it's all going to end well for me. The reality is when we read the gospel accounts, he finishes his work. The father is pleased with his work. We know that he is because he raises him from the dead and therefore declares him righteous. So that all who are trusting in him are declared righteous in the here and now. Okay, Future judgment is brought into the here and now for us because Christ has been judged. So we'll talk about that along the way. If I lost you, sorry. Jesus is the answer. Is that enough? Um, We'll keep learning together. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the dawning of the new creation in Christ and His kingdom. And we're thankful to be able to learn about Him. And we're thankful to know that we can trust in Him. Thank you that we're here today because of your grace and mercy. Help us to be grateful. Help us to live in a way that would show honor and gratitude to you and not just pride and arrogance. Indeed, you're a merciful and kind Savior. Help us to have that to be quick on our lips as we would want to be like John and call people to repentance, um, acknowledging our own repentance as well. In Jesus' name, amen.